The sermon text this morning is from the book of Psalms, chapter 77. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Silah. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. With your arm, you with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Salah. When the waters saw you, O oh God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Before Carol and I um, traveled to Austria to work in missions, uh, we were given 10 weeks of training in the German language. Uh, that was not enough. Um, we had many, many miscues that were quite hilarious. I was on the train trying to practice my German with the students, and they thought I was very funny, not because of the jokes, of course, that I was telling, but because of my language skills. Carol, she had a unique experience. She actually uh, was lost one day and was looking for a town, looking for directions to go to a town named uh, Baden. That's the name of the town. She asked for directions to Baden. She asked in German, and the man kind of laughed at her. He was a man, maybe her age, handsome man, kind of chuckled a little bit. And so in German, she asked, well, uh, can you speak English? And he said, yes. And so he, uh, she asked him in English where Baden was, and so he told her. Anyway, she came home a little bit miffed that she was laughed at, and we had a, uh, a girl from Switzerland on our team who was a German-speaking Swiss, and uh, when we told her the story, she started laughing. And Carol goes, what's with the laughing, you know? She goes, well, what you're, what you're telling him is you went up to a man that you didn't know, and you said, I want to go take a bath. <laughs> and 
and she goes, ah, okay, maybe that makes a little sense. But what we learned very quickly, you need to know the language to get around in that culture. You need to know how to speak the language. Well, we're in the second week of Psalms in this series, and we're trying to learn the language of worship. We want to learn how to worship God in times uh, that, are, that are good. We want to be able to give thanksgiving and be grateful of heart. But that's a little more intuitive. That's a little more comfortable. Uh, we also want to learn the language of worship in times of sorrow, in times of trouble, in times of difficulty. God is the same. He does not change. He is worthy of our worship when things are riding very high for us and when things seem to be sinking very low. So we want to learn how to worship God in both. And this is where the Psalms of lament come in. Remember, the Psalms, it's a book of worship for Israel. The Psalms, remember, much of the Bible is is God speaking to us. But the Psalms are really kind of us speaking to God. They give us words to address God, and they give us words to address God in times of great difficulty. These psalms of lament help us to cry out to God, uh, to bring forth our sorrow, our, our brokenness, to appeal to God for help. And these psalms of lament will also give us language and words to be able to express our confusion perhaps even frustration and difficulties that we have with God. But but the psalmist is like a guide, and he's going to lead us to make our petitions before God, to appeal to God, God, we need deliverance, and then even leads us to trust in God. That's what these psalms do. They give us a structure from leading from desperation to even delight, from suffering to satisfaction. We need to learn the language of these psalms. Do you realize that over a third of the psalms are lament? Over a third of them. Why? Well, because we live in exile. We live in this time between Genesis 3 where we're separated from God. We're in the wilderness. God has sent a son, and he has come to redeem us in full measure. He has not come to restore us yet in full measure. We will. We live in this time. Whether you're a Christian here or not, we suffer. This is, this is a land of sorrow and suffering. We live in a unique time and in a unique place. A majority of life. These psalms have been like oxygen to that. Helping people struggling. We live in a place apart from God. So of course, We're going to have trouble. Every one of us here, young or old, we will experience various sorrows and sufferings. These psalms are necessary for us. We enter the world with suffering, don't we? Michael Cardin's book, The Sacred Sorrow, speaks about the first thing that happens is a baby crying as it leaves the warmth and the comfort of its mother's womb, and it enters into this world of exile, and it cries. It's the first thing done by every human being. Lament's different, though. Lament is not simply crying, because what a lament does is it may involve tears, but it leads to joy, and it leads because it leads to God. So look with me at 77. I want to give you a, a paradigm to follow. Uh, The psalmist is giving us that, uh, a template, as it were, as to how we can 
learn this language of worship even in the midst of sorrows. So you may be in it now. You might not, but you will be. And this psalm will be a guide to us, like a shepherd almost, leading us to God in the midst of our trial. So the first thing we see in a psalm of lament, how do we use a psalm of lament for worship? Well, first we learn, the first thing is that there's an invitation to cry out to God. We're turning to God, expressing our our distress, really. A lament is just that. It's a loud cry. It's a wail. It's an expression of grief. We are expressing our sadness to God. Look in the first couple of verses. He says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. You see, the psalmist doesn't go to himself. He doesn't dig down deep where these vast resources are waiting to be found to help him. He doesn't go inside. He doesn't go outside. He doesn't go to his peers or his friends or those he respects. He goes to God. He turns to God first to express his distress. Now, the author is Asaph. We don't know a ton, of Asaph, a ton about Asaph. He might have been a Levite, a musician. And we don't know a ton of the trouble that he's in. He just says that he's in trouble. It could have been marriage. It could have been financial. It could have been health. The word itself, trouble, though, describes something unique. It describes like that situation where the walls are closing in on you. Or you're entering this dark tunnel and it gets smaller on you. So, so there's this sense of fear and dread and desperation. And that's, that's the trouble he's in. And he's crying out. He's not getting an immediate answer. It doesn't seem to be working right now because you see him stretching out his hand through the night. He doesn't want easy answers. He knows his issues are deep. They're severe. That's why he says, my soul refuses to be comforted with any of the pablum that comes from people. It won't serve me. It won't help me. Now, a lot of scholars think that the reason he doesn't identify the trouble is because he does want it to be a template. He wants it to be a paradigm for us to be able to use, for the people of God who would follow him. He wants it to be useful to you so that you can follow the same path that he has cut out of the woods for us. So he cries out to God. Now, when, when trouble comes knocking on your door, when you get devastating news, what do you do? What's the first thing you do? Do you get angry at God? Do you give him the silent treatment? Or, or do you kind of white-knuckle it and you just endure it? I'm going to do it like a good soldier. How do you handle it? Do you turn to food? Do you turn to alcohol? Do you turn to others? What do you do when that trouble comes? Because what the psalmist did, he, he runs to God. He is free to express his frustration. He takes his sorrow to God. It's, it's not an indication of weak faith. It's humility coming, expressing his grief. You know, Charles Spurgeon English preacher of the 19th century in London, he suffered with great bouts of depression. He, he struggled much with despair. He gave words to it. He says, some of us know what it is, both physically and spiritually, to be compelled to use these words. A respite has been offered us by the silence of the night. Our bed has been a rack to us. Our, our body has been in torment. Our spirit in anguish. He said, alas, my God, the writer of this exposition, that's him, of course, well knows what the servant Asaph meant. For his soul is familiar with the way of grief. 
deep glens and lonely caves of soul depression, my spirit knows full well your awful glooms. This is a godly man expressing grief to God. We're invited to do this. We, we cry out to God in desperation, but we cry out in desperation by faith. By faith, knowing that God is able to help. Otherwise, you wouldn't go to God. If you don't think he can help you or aid you, you won't go to him. But the psalmist goes in faith, not knowing what's going to happen, but he goes in faith because he knows that God knows him. Notice what he says in verse 1. He says, he will hear me. He knows that God listens. You know, if you think about it, I, I always love, whenever we're with kids, they were young, playground, Carol could pick up the voice of her children on a playground filled with 50 kids. And they're all screaming at the same time. But she knew that voice. She knew the voices of her kids. You mothers know that. You, you just have, you have tuned to it. Well, God knows us. When we cry, into, he hears our voice. He knows our voice. He's aware. You know, Isaiah 49, Isaiah writes, Can a woman forget her nursing child? that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Here's what he says. Even though she may forget, yet I will not forget you. God will not forget you. So if it's even believable that a woman might forget the one that she nursed at her breast, I will not forget you. So we can, we can cry out to God. The psalmist is inviting us in the day of trouble to come to him and cry out to him. There's nothing weak about that. It's walking out an invitation. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, to whom do you turn when trials come to you? When the medical community is exhausted of wisdom, when technology will fail you, when your friends can no longer be leveraged to help you, to whom will you turn? When, when a, a husband leaves a wife. When a young child is given two months to live, 19, to whom do they turn? You know, many cry, but will you cry out to God? That's what he's calling for here. Will you cry out to God? That's the, that, that's the first thing we see. Now, now, interestingly, the graciousness of God is seen in this dark lining in the sense that oftentimes God will bring trials into our lives so that we will run to him when everything else fails. This is C.S. Lewis's famous line, that, that pain is the megaphone of God, that sometimes it's these very things that strip down of all the promises of the world, and we realize they will not, they cannot help, and we finally turn to God. And we don't find God resentful that you took so long to come to him. We find him willing, listening, and able to help. So <clears throat> when, when trouble comes to the door, we cry out to him in distress. Honestly, we cry out to God. But we don't stop there. Notice what the psalmist does. He takes his sorrows now to God. He begins to articulate them. And he even begins to complain. You heard me right on that. He even begins to complain to God. And not a high-handed defiance or disrespect 
or kind of contempt towards God, but a true expression of his struggle. Look with me in 3 and 4. He says, when I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. Clearly, he's in travail. He is moaning in the grief and the struggle that he has. Fill in the blank with something from your life that has caused you to moan or to weep, where you just are so fatigued. You don't know that you can get out of bed. You're so overwhelmed. You can't sleep. Your eyelids are being held open by God. Sleep is being prevented from giving you rest. You're just turning it in your mind over and over and over again. You don't have words to put. It's such tragedy that you don't even know what to say. The psalmist is expressing this this deep grief that he has. And you notice in 5 and 6, he says, I do remember the songs of the night. In other words, I remember God when you were favorable to me. And you were kind to me, and you answered my prayers, but now it's all gone dark. Remember, the lament is for the person who believes in God, but is in the midst of tragedy. One author said it this way. He says, a lament honestly and specifically complains to God about situation or circumstances that are painful, wrong, or unjust. Circumstances that do not align with God's character, and therefore does not make sense within God's kingdom. It's those times where you're like trying to reconcile, God, I know you're good and you're kind, but, but right now I'm in the midst of great travail and I'm remaining in it. And it seems incongruent. In fact, it pushes them. If you see seven to nine, these painful situations become painful questions, challenging questions. Look at these questions he's asking. Will the Lord spurn forever? Will he never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased, or his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? It's interesting. I don't think he's being sarcastic. I think he is truly struggling with this covenantal God that has promised to care and love and protect him. And he is just in that crucible of faith when everything seems contrary to what God has been and who God is. It, it, it's great travail for him. He's struggling deeply with his faith. That's what happens, I think, when crises hit. It, it's, like a, it's like a spiritual disorientation. It's like a spiritual vertigo. If you've ever had vertigo, Boy, I tell you what, everything's orderly and square and it makes sense. And before you know it, the world is spinning. I remember getting vertigo and I had to literally crawl up the stairs of the house. I couldn't walk up it. I, I just, everything was moving at the same time. Just looking for something to hang on to. And that's what happens. Perhaps you've been through this already. Perhaps you've, you've asked some of these questions. God, why do you seem to be so opposed to me? Why do you hate me? Do you not love me? Why are you leaving me in this situation? Have you asked those questions of God? And you've just appealed to God. God, what are you doing here? Do you feel safe to ask those questions? Do you feel safe to ask those questions among your brothers and sisters and members of this church? It, it, would, be, uh, it would be a deep, it would be a deep sadness if we could not feel safe to ask these questions. When a Christian will judge another Christian as being weak in faith because they're struggling with God and having a dark night of their soul, 
that would be a deep shame, and it would only increase the tragedy of the person that's struggling. I, I hope we can do that here. I hope we're able to literally say to someone, I'm struggling deeply right now. I'm in deep travail. I, I'm wondering if God even loves me. And, and, and if you're listening to that, I, I would not be quick to fix the problem. I, I would be just quick to listen and, and let them express to you the struggle and the hardship that they're facing. Alexander McLaren was a Scottish minister in the 19th century, and he said these words. He says, Doubts are better put into plain speech than lying diffused and darkening like poisonous mists in our heart. It's good to get them out. God is inviting, be honest. Uh, don't pretend. Don't act as if it doesn't matter. Don't act as if it's not painful. God is inviting us to himself to strive with us. These laments, um, they, they, there's certain rawness to them, really. Um, when, uh, so I started journaling, as I think I've shared before with you, once uh, our, grand, our granddaughter was diagnosed with cancer, I found them to be exceptionally helpful to me, uh, to be able to put into words the struggles that we were having fighting for faith. And I've shared that with you, but I, I wanted to just share a, a clip out of 616, 2018. Now, I was looking at Psalm 13, which would be a psalm of lament. And, and here's where the words that I wrote down. I first quoted the psalm. For me, journaling, I quote the psalm, and then I kind of make a prayer or at least express uh, what I'm feeling. So the psalm 13 says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me? He says, how long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And so I just, I just prayed. I said, dear Father, I, I know that you do not forget, but as time presses and passes with your hand upon us, the fight for faith increases. Unanswered prayer seemed to cause time to drag and, and grow heavy. We are watching our, I am watching my family grow weary. Starting to fatigue in faith. Hold us fast. Secure us in your mercy. I am making an appeal to you for deliverance. Dear Lord, we are weighed down with concern for the life of this precious child and family. Lighten our eyes, Father. Hold us fast. We are shaken. Give grace to us to not fail in faith. Give grace to increase our dependence. May we trust you that you love us deeply and securely. May we not see you as loving only in good circumstances. And then I go on. Just an expression of the heart. A questioning of God. It wasn't in contempt, it was just in weakness. That's what the psalmist is instructing us. Come to God first. Turn to God and cry in desperation. And then, state your case. State your case before the Holy One. List your sorrow. List your struggle. List how you're wrestling with Him. Be honest with Him. Don't pretend. 
He knows what's on your heart. But, but then the psalmist turns. The psalmist turns in verse 10, and I want you to see it, because this is the third step. Now, a lot of psalms, let me just say this up front, a lot of psalms, most lament psalms will have a section of petition. Uh, psalm 77 doesn't. It's implicit, you'll see, in the trust. But normally, each lament has a specific petition that you make. In Psalm 77, though, he turns to trust. He turns to, you know, because complaints can be just that. They can be just complaining against God, griping against God, grumbling against God. That's not what you're hearing here. You're hearing a complaint, and you know that it's a complaint seeking favor from God, asking for mercy from God. But you see in 10, he begins to make a shift, and this is the turn I want you to see. This is the turn that many people never make. They cry in distress, and they begin to complain about the lot that the Lord has given to them, and then they stop. The psalmist bids us to go around and turn in faith and in trust. Now look what he says in 10 to 14. He says, Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. Well, God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Do you see what he's doing? He's making this bold move to declare trust. He does two things. Number one, he remembers God's character. He says, I appeal to the years at the Most High. He's thinking back now, historically, over all the, the kindness, the mercy, the goodness of God. Notice all those promises. He says, all the intentionality of the psalmist. He says, I will remember. He says it twice. I will meditate. I will ponder. I'm going to give thought to these things. I'm going to meditate on your mighty acts, your, your profound deeds, all the things you've done. I'm going to look back in history. I'm going, to, I'm going to study what you've done to remind myself of what? Of your character. And that's what you see in verse 12. Because he says, your way, O Lord, is holy. It's a holy way. That God's character is perfect. It's without error. It's without blemish. He cannot do wrong. He will not do things against his own people in any way that we won't thank him for. So the psalmist is refreshing himself in the character of God. His situation has not changed, but neither has God. And that's what he goes to. He says, I will remember, I will ponder, I will think upon your mighty deeds. But he doesn't just remember the character of God. He remembers the deliverance of God. That's what you see in 16 to 20. In 16 to 20, you see that he goes right to that greatest act of redemption in the Old Testament. That is the Exodus. When God drew the people out of Egypt, out of bondage to slavery, and he brought them to a land flowing with milk and honey. He goes right there. Notice what he says there in 16. He says, when the waters saw you, O God, they were afraid and indeed deep trembled. In other words, God, he's saying, I understand that this world is not being run by impersonal, autonomous forces with some absentee creator. I know it does. Even the water is frightened by you. Even the waters will separate before you. 
So he knows full well the power and the glory of God, as displayed in the Exodus. He knows that God has the power to deliver because of the Exodus. Notice what it says in 19. He says, your way was through the sea. He doesn't lift us out of the dilemma. He takes us through it. He says, your path through the great water, yet your footprints were unseen. It's interesting. The psalmist didn't go through the Exodus, but he knows the truth of it from Scripture. And so he references it. You were not seen, but you were there. Nobody saw you. Nobody could point you out, but they all knew you were there like a shepherd leading us. So he does two things. He remembers the character of God, and he remembers the deliverance of God. Now, let me remind you that in the Old Testament, the Exodus was really the pinnacle of displaying God's mercy and power. But when you read through the Old Testament, you begin to realize that the people understood the Exodus was not like the one big flash in the pan by God. The Exodus was really becoming a picture to Israel of deliverance. It wasn't a full deliverance. Because when they got back to the land, they were still sinning, they were still struggling, and they were still failing. But the Exodus was a picture of a deliverance to come. A deliverance that would be full and complete. Now, Jesus knew this. He picked this up in his ministry. Let me remind you that John the Baptist went out into the desert to preach. He did that for a purpose. He went out where? Into the wilderness. He went to the same place that Adam and Eve were driven when they departed from God. They went into the wilderness. Jesus was impelled to go in the wilderness by the Spirit to begin his ministry. He began preaching in the wilderness. Why? He's a second Moses. He's leading the people out of an exile to sin, not human bondage, but to sin and to the deterioration of our world. That's why Jesus went, it says, to the mountain to give the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, but I say to you, he's, he's another lawgiver. He's a lawgiver leading the people out of exile. Jesus himself says in John 10 that I'm a shepherd. Just like God shepherded them through the sea, so Jesus says, I am the good shepherd who will lay down my life for the sheep. Through his crucifixion and through his resurrection, he has led us to God. We are now enjoying the fruit of his labor. Not fully. That, the fulfillment of leaving exile back into the presence of God, we wait for that day. But that is the hope that we have. That's why we turn back in trust in the middle of lament. We can declare our trust in God because the Savior has already come. He has already defeated death. He's already reconciled men and women to God through faith. He's already shown us the beauty of the kingdom that he will bring. What's he do? He gives sight to the blind. He gives hearing to the deaf. He gives speech to the mute. He raises the dead. He cleanses the leper. He heals the demonized. He's doing all these snapshots of this is my kingdom that I will be leading you to. That's why I said in his preaching at the very beginning, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news, the good news that he, the good shepherd, has come and delivered us. This is why in lament we can make the turn, and we can make the turn to trust in him. So to make this term, you're meditating on the acts of God. You're meditating on the character. When I talk about, when the psalmist says, I'll remember and I'll ponder and I'll meditate 
and I'll think upon. Listen, knowledge can be passive. Your knowledge of God can be passive. I know all these truths about God, but they don't bring any reward. They don't bring any rescue in the midst of your trouble. That is a passive knowledge. This is not a passive. Meditation is not passive. It's not kind of just looking at a, at a light and kind of think. No, it is an active, patient trust in the words of God, in the character of God, in the acts of God. We are meditating on these things. So if you're struggling, let's say, you just can't get over the despair of sin and, and the past history that you've had. Then we go to the words of Jesus. He said, it's finished on the cross. And you say, no, I'm going to ponder that. It is finished. He said, it's finished. He didn't say it's partly done. It's mostly done. I just about got there. It is finished. And I trust that more than I trust in my own mind. Or you get devastating news that you have cancer, that you have some short period of time to live. Then we go to the scriptures and he says that not life, nor death, nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor things to come, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate me from the love of God, not even death itself. And so I build a house on that. And I say, I'll trust in you. In the midst of this diagnosis, I will trust in you. I'm going to turn to your word. You know, David Pallison, many of you know that name. He's a Christian counselor. He's written much. He's spoken a lot. He was associated with CCEF. It's a counseling a group associated with West, Westminster Seminary, or at least in proximity. And many of you know that he's just died recently from pancreatic cancer. Uh, he was diagnosed with cancer. They did not think it was to the degree that it was. When they tried to operate on him, they realized it was farther than they expected. They sewed him back up. Later on, they took a CAT scan. It had spread. It had grown. When he asked the doctor what the prognosis was, he said, two months. And here's what he says. He says, so how are we doing in light of such hard news? Grief and tears are close to the surface. Love the honesty. But scripture has been living and active, full of love. The dots are connecting. In other words, he knows God's plan is forming. He's not going to be healed. And he's okay with that. He says the dots are connecting and the And the intimate voice and presence of God, he references, in Psalm 121 has been particularly significant companion. Our shepherd watches over us, protects us, cares for us, and never dozes off. He says, it's so, it's so. He's being upheld by the precious character of God, the promises of God, in the midst of a very short window of what would be his life. That's what it means to meditate on the word. To meditate on the promises of God. I encourage you to consider this. Many of us just read through and gain a passive knowledge, but we don't meditate, we don't consider. So that's the first thing, to make that turn. Meditate, but also do this in gathered community. You have to gather together with the saints. You'll notice the very last verse of this psalm. Interesting verse. Notice what it says. It says, I will shepherd. I don't have it in front of me, but I think it'll say, I will shepherd my people, Moses and Aaron, led them, leads them. The point of it is that God is the shepherd, but he's using his leadership. He's using his people to guide them. That we lament individually. This is an individual lament. We come to God and we cry out to him in distress. But this is, it incorporates the community of faith. Remember now, this lament 
at the beginning, at the superscription, at the very beginning, it's set to music. It's to be sung by the church. The congregation gathered sings this together. We are to gather together to walk and lament. I, I, can't, I can't tell you how much help we have received over the years of ministry. When you are texting us psalms or prayers that you pray, uh, particularly in this last year, it's incredible to hear you pray and, and to see texts come in at 2.32 a.m. This is what I prayed for you and I couldn't sleep. I mean, it, it, it's like a fortress that you're climbing in. We need the community to lament together. We need to meditate, know the promises of God, trust in them, submit to them, and find hope in them. But we need to do it with one another. Essential to do it with one another. I want to close in this way. I'd like to ask Vanitha Reisner to come up. She's going to give a personal testimony. Many of you know Vanitha. Um, I want these psalms to be instructional so that you are reading them and you're learning from them. I, I've asked Vanitha to come up, and many of you know she has gone through uh, many different points in her life of suffering. We've uh, watched her and have grown in deep respect for how she has walked through these difficulties, these tragedies, and she's done it in a very gracious and, and God-centered way. And I wanted these psalms, and we talked about this as elders earlier in the year, uh, we want the scriptures to be both instructional, but periodically have different saints come up and speak to how God has, has moved in them in a way that would give more flesh and color to what we're being instructed in by the scriptures. I wonder, Vanitha, just to speak in, in terms of by way of personal testimony, here's how God has met me in lament, in suffering, and found him to be sufficient for her in the midst of her struggle. So thank you, Vanitha. Yeah. I have 20 minutes, right? <laughs> Maybe oh. not. <laughs> Some of you here know that 22 years ago, I had a son named Paul who was born with a significant heart problem. We had surgery at, he had surgery at birth, and he was doing great. He had wonderful surgeons, and they said he was out of the woods. He was going to live a pretty normal life. But we took him in for a checkup, and a substitute doctor impulsively took Paul off all his medication, saying he didn't need it anymore because he was doing so well. Two days later, Paul died. I was devastated. I had prayed. My parents had prayed. Our family had prayed. Our church had prayed. And I felt that God had let us down. I spoke at Paul's funeral and talked about feeling God's presence, and I really did. God carried me through that. But days later, I was numb. And soon afterwards, I was spiraling downward. And I didn't know what to do about that because it felt like faithful Christians shouldn't be depressed. They shouldn't spiral downward. They needed to count all their struggles joy. And I couldn't count this as joy. It was horrible. And so I felt like there was this period where it's okay to cry and people are okay if you cry and cry out. But after that, 
you sort of need to get over it, or that's what people made me, I felt. And so I withdrew. I felt that I couldn't even be honest with God. And so God became very distant from me. I was angry and sad and hurt, but I didn't feel like I could say anything. And I felt like I couldn't even say anything to God. My mom always taught me, if you can't say anything good, don't say anything at all. And I could not say anything good to God. So I didn't say anything at all. And after a while, I stopped praying. And then I discovered lament. I was reading in the Bible and I found words that I had never noticed before. They were there, but I would gloss over them as just part of the story. But when I read them afresh, I realized they were words that I could say too, that honestly I would not have dared to say if they weren't in the Bible. These words from Jeremiah meant a lot to me. They're in Lamentations 3. And I'm going to quote from the New Living Translation just because it, it has a little more, um, it's a little more emotional here. He has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. Though I cry and shout, he has shut out my prayers. He has dragged me off the path, leaving me helpless and devastated. Everything I had hoped for from the Lord is lost. That's how I felt. But I never would have had the courage to say anything like that. I thought I needed to press ahead and praise God and never be discouraged. Because I really thought that it was my job to defend God. And that I needed to present a good picture of God to people so they wouldn't doubt or question God. But then I started thinking, I have lost the power that Christians are supposed to have. People say you have power from God. But I didn't realize the power we have comes from being vulnerable and real. The transcendent power belongs to God and not to us. It's not my power. It's not up to me to fix myself and feel better. But I could be real, and so I started talking to God again. And one of the things I did was journal. Uh, very similarly to what Tom read from, I would write out a psalm or a portion from Lamentations or a portion from Job, and then I would write my thoughts underneath. Like, God, why? Why is this happening? Why did you do this? This is more painful than I ever dreamed. And there was such freedom in that. I used to write in my Bible as well. And um, I go through a, few bi a Bible every few years, and I gave one to my daughter, one of my daughters, an old Bible. And she laughs because it was during a really hard time in my life. And she said, it's pretty depressing because I like star and underline all the hard verses but that gave me language that I didn't have without it. Tom said last week that the Psalms speak for us. And the Psalms spoke for me, and I was so grateful because they unlocked a relationship with God that I thought I was losing. And the more I talked, the less angry I became. And we see that in Scripture as Tom talked about this turn that we make. And I love this turn that Jeremiah makes right after the portion that I read. He says, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. 
The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That turn was genuine. Jeremiah had been pretty much scandalously honest before he spoke of God's love and mercy. So I knew what he said were genuine words. He wasn't trying to look good, because he definitely didn't. And we don't look good when we are struggling, but we are being honest with God. And the natural result for me, and I think for everyone, of talking to God directly, praying, not talking about God and grumbling, but talking to God is praise. Most of my journal entries would start off angry or hopeless or confused, and almost all of them ended up with hope in God. And that's the way the Psalms are too, as Tom talked about. Most of the Psalms, except for one, end in praise that started with confusion and lament. So we see that modeled in our lives and in the Psalms. And I would say for me that if I'm not willing to lament, it was because I didn't trust God. Because the one we will lament to is the one that we deeply trust. When I pretended I was fine, I felt that I was responsible for my faith and not God. I felt that it was up to me to make other people see that God helps us through everything. But that's a lie. God holds me. We don't need to hold on to God. He holds us. He doesn't need our defense. He asks us to be authentic. So when I was real with God, my faith grew much deeper. I would say lament was the making of my faith because it taught me to keep talking to God and the Bible gave me words to talk to God. And it starts off with crying and complaining and asking and begging and confusion, telling God our raw thoughts unedited, but it ends with praise. In a good way, Florence had taught me this one way to lament from the Psalms, which is to just write in your journal, how long, O Lord? And just write all the things that you're waiting for, that you are begging God to change. And then write, but you, O God. What are the truths that you know about God? And I do that again and again in my own life. It's incredible that God invites us to do these things. He knows it's hard. He doesn't want us to pretend. I would say that belting out a praise song when you don't mean it isn't worship. True worship is being honest with God and bringing your whole self to him. It will result in praise and trust and a deeper faith than you could ever imagine. So we want these, this series on Psalms to be instructional and helpful to you. So we, we've looked at lament. It's a crying out to God. It's a bringing your sorrows and your questions to God and then turning in trust. You know, you'll notice when you look back through the Psalm that in the first nine verses, the first person is used close to 20 times. He's expressing himself. In the second half of the Psalm, the name of God or God is referenced 22 times and very little in first person, he's made the shift. He's trusting in God. So let's take a moment now and ask God for grace to understand and, and ask him for wisdom uh, and strength to walk in 
in light of what we've learned. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.